0: and welcome to relevant history i'm dan toller now for those of you who are already familiar with this show you know i don't typically like to gum up the beginning of the episode with a bunch of nonsense but i do just have a couple of brief announcements right now as we start uh, before we get on with today's story uh, first off uh, the biggest announcement is that we're going to be doing something a bit different, starting with the next episode. I've been getting a lot of feedback from people, and from what I understand, most people who listen to this show listen to it in segments. Now, when I think about it, this really shouldn't be that surprising. I mean, most of the episodes are around two hours long. That's longer than most people sit and listen, right? Look, I get it. I follow a lot of long-form programs myself, and usually I don't listen in a whole stretch either, right? It's more of an audiobook. You hit pause or stop or whatever and come back to it later. But what a number of people have suggested is, why don't you just do weekly episodes and make them a little bit shorter? And, you know, if it's a multi-parter, do a little recap at the beginning or something. That would make it easier for people, the majority of listeners, from what I understand, who listen in shorter pieces. It would also give you not necessarily more content I don't know that we could do that without compromising the quality uh, but more frequent content uh, if that makes any sense and uh, the way we will be making this change is uh, today is a normal episode and then we will take off next week and then beginning on April 6th Uh, The episodes will be shorter and will be coming out weekly, so every Tuesday. Uh, And again, I don't like to tie myself to a specific length. Look, that is part of the fun of distributing on the web versus some other format. We can do whatever length show we like. So right now, I shoot for two hours. Depends on the content. Can be more, can be less. We'll be doing the same thing going forward. We'll shoot for an hour a week. Can be more, can be less. Depends what we're talking about. In other news, I had the opportunity to participate in an interview with Christian Carrion of the Stranger Than Christian podcast. Christian does a different interview every week with different people from not just around the United States, but from around the world. And he was kind enough to have me on his show where we discussed a variety of topics, not just about history, but also about uh, entertainment and popular culture. If you're interested in that kind of thing, you can find a link to the interview both in the show notes and on my website in the interview section. Or you can go to strangerthanchristian.com and there you will find my interview amongst all of Christian's others. The other announcement is that we now have our first benefit for Patreon and Subscribestar subscribers. That's right. There is a private Relevant History Discord server where I'm active on a regular basis. Now, I'm typically on Discord, if not every day, every other day, but I will see your messages there. And in addition, uh, we will set up uh, maybe some conversations or uh, ask me anythings or maybe get some guests in there as the show grows naturally. And if you would like to be a part of that Discord server, all you have to do is sign up for the basic membership tier of $5 a month, and more benefits will be coming as the show grows. You can do that at patreon.com slash that's Dan T-O-L-E-R podcast, uh, or you can go to subscribestar.com and just search for Relevant History. Also, please share the show with your friends or Drop a review on your favorite service when you have the chance. It really does help us grow. Finally, a correction on last week's episode, or rather a clarification. Uh, When I spoke about the uh, practice of money lending in medieval Europe uh, being almost exclusively limited to Jews uh, because they were the ones who were religiously allowed to do it, I should make a couple of clarifications. First off, uh, lending money for interest had been banned previously under temple Judaism uh, while the Jewish people lived in Israel. Uh, it was permitted under rabbinical Judaism. That is the form of Judaism practiced after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And even then, it was not allowed to lend it interest to a fellow Jew. Uh, the Christian tradition was a little bit different. It combined Jewish teaching with ancient Roman law, uh, which was a little bit weird. Uh, essentially, uh, in the Middle Ages, you could charge a fee for use of something. Uh, basically, what we would call a rental fee in modern terms, right? So if you're a farmer and you lent your neighbor a plow, right, you could expect them to pay you some money in exchange for borrowing your plow for a week or whatever but consumable goods only needed to be returned in kind, and you could not charge interest. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Uh, You could charge a fee for renting a consumable good as well. So, say I lent you two cups of flour. Well, I couldn't charge quote-unquote interest, right? I couldn't ask you to return me three cups of flour, but I could charge you a fee for lending you the flour. However, with money, Uh, Because money is both a consumable good and it is the thing being lent, well, if you lent money, you could not charge interest. Uh, You couldn't even charge a quote-unquote rental fee on the money because that would be considered uh, interest by its very nature. It, It was very weird, but essentially Christians were not allowed to lend money for interest at that time in history. And by the way the prohibition on lending money for interest remains today in most islamic traditions even as you know both christianity and judaism have more or less accepted its practice uh, on a widespread basis anyway now that we are done with all of the announcements let us move forward with today's episode now Last week, we talked about the First Crusade. And while that particular event was relevant to our series, right, this particular season, which is about nationalism, the idea of nationhood and what makes a nation, uh, the Crusades themselves were not a nationalist endeavor. So I don't want to get bogged... Down, in a blow-by-blow recounting of the Crusades. And yet, because I find it impossible to skip over anything historically interesting, I find myself doing a very, very detailed summary of the Second Crusade. This is a complex time period. Entire books have been written about very... Short events that happened in very small places that had an outsized impact. But ultimately, the reason the Crusades are not as relevant as some other historical events is because they failed. Right? The Middle East did not become European. Right? it It didn't even become Christianized, right? It became, more Islamic over the years after the Crusades, right? You will find very few Christians in the Middle East today, whereas back during the Crusades, the area was majority Christian still, ruled mostly by Muslims. But by any objective measurement, if you were to bring uh, a crusading knight forward in time to the modern day and ask them their assessment of the Crusades, uh, they would say that they failed. None of their goals were accomplished in the long term. Uh, Even so, the Crusades in the Middle East have gotten trendy of late. I think this is because of current events. The War on Terror, we can draw some modern parallels, many of them misguided, but even our leaders have sometimes intentionally, sometimes inadvertently, uh, stepped in it, so to speak. For instance, remember what George W. Bush said at a press conference on September 16th, 2001? Uh, this was only five days after the 9-11 attacks. We understand, and the American people are beginning to understand, now, this, is, this, 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 this this crusade... This war on terrorism uh, is going to take a while, and the American people must be patient. Now, in this case, uh, as you could probably guess, uh, Bush was speaking off the cuff and not choosing his words carefully, and even so, the word crusade set off a worldwide uproar. It's just one example of how the crusades are... ...still somewhat of a current and uh, sensitive issue in some areas... ...despite the fact that they didn't really accomplish anything. But that is really only the case, ironically, with the Crusades in the Middle East. See, at the same time, there were lesser-known Crusades occurring inside the continent of Europe... And some of those crusades, well, they had a permanent and lasting impact, not just on Europe, but on the entire world. But to understand why that might be the case, you first have to take a step back and look at the Second Crusade as a whole and understand how it was carried out. Why the Second Crusade? Well... That's because the Second Crusade in the Middle East corresponded with the First Crusades within the continent of Europe. Let's take a step back and go where we were at the end of the last episode. We left off in the year 1099, at the end of the First Crusade. And at that time, there were four crusader states in the Middle East. Uh, these are right uh, small countries that were founded by European knights and lords who had come crusading and taken the territory. Uh, from south to north, these were the Kingdom of Jerusalem, uh, the County of Tripoli, Not the Tripoli in Libya, this is a Middle Eastern Tripoli, uh, and the Principality of Antioch. Uh, So those three, Jerusalem, Tripoli, and Antioch, are all along the Mediterranean coast. And then landlocked to the northeast is the county of Edessa. Now, all four of these Crusader states were separated geographically from Western Europe. Right, they were on the other side of the Mediterranean. As a matter of fact, the French called the area Outremer, which simply means overseas. And the Christian tradition of pilgrimage, right, going to Jerusalem, that was strong. There were a lot of Europeans going to Jerusalem, if only to visit, but all of that money kept the kingdom financially very well off, uh, compared to both its Christian and its Muslim neighbors in the general area there. But pilgrimage is not the same as moving to the Middle East, right? Today, every year, millions and millions of Muslims from around the world make the pilgrimage of the Hajj to go visit the city of Mecca, but... Almost none of them move to Saudi Arabia permanently, right? They go on the Hajj, they complete their religious pilgrimage, and then they go back home to whatever their country is. Well, the European Christians uh, were mostly the same way. They'd go to Jerusalem, they would visit some of the holy sites, of course spend some money there at some local inns, and buy some sacred relics, which may or may not be fake, and then go back to Europe, right? Without a crusade to entice them, very few Europeans are willing to go sail overseas uh, to be a soldier for some crusader king. That is not an attractive career path. So this shortage of manpower has left all the crusader kingdoms in need of help for soldiering. And they're largely reliant at this time on the Knights Templar. Uh, This is a religious order. These men are technically uh, monks, actually. They take holy vows. Uh, You know, they're supposed to be celibate and uh, live in poverty, uh, owning only their weapons and the clothes on their back now. As we'll see, they don't always keep these vows, but in theory, they're supposed to be these sort of holy warrior monks who dedicate their lives to, you know, keeping the Holy Land safe for Christian pilgrims, right? Whether or not they live up to that. And... At least the lower three crusader states, even as they're sort of in this precarious situation, at least they're on the Mediterranean coast, right? They can engage in trade uh, fairly easily. They can get help from Europe fairly easily if need be. Uh, But the county of Edessa is landlocked, and it's also the largest of the crusader states and simultaneously the most sparsely populated. There are only a few thousand uh, European residents there, and it is only the military brilliance of their king, uh, Jocelyn I, that keeps the uh, county safe for as long as it remains safe. And to make things even worse for the Crusader kingdoms... Events in Europe keep the Europeans distracted from the Middle East. Right? The Normans, both in France and in England, are constantly going at it with the French. England itself falls into civil war in this period after the First Crusade. The Holy Roman Emperor, he's busy playing politics with the Pope. Uh, if you remember, there was an anti-Pope uh, during the last episode. This gets resolved after the first crusade, but there's still a larger struggle going on over who has authority over politics in Europe. And in Iberia, the Christian kingdoms are battling the Muslim kingdoms in Spain and Portugal. Sometimes the Christian and Muslim kingdoms are fighting amongst themselves. Sometimes they're allying and fighting against themselves. It's all very complicated and it's a mess over there. But all of this means that the Crusader states aren't getting as much help as they might otherwise have been able to rely on. The idea of Christendom that we talked about in the Last episode, right? The sort of idea of a pan Christian supranation as a parallel to the Muslim caliphate. Well, as the Muslims have already discovered, uh, the idea of that sort of
1: massive
0: religious nation is sort of a pipe dream. People are not necessarily willing to set aside their own political and cultural and ethnic differences just because God tells them to do so. For whatever reason, that is just not a switch that religion seems to be able to instantly flip. Anyway, the final issue that the Crusader states are dealing with at this time, is that the Muslim armies in the area, right in the Levant, in Mesopotamia, and Anatolia, uh, they're not standing pat, they're adapting, right? We talked about uh, in the last episode how sometimes uh, tactics uh, and and the way the Europeans fought, that was able to help Uh, relatively small numbers of crusaders to beat relatively large numbers of Muslim troops in the field. Well, that is starting to change. The Muslim leaders are changing their tactics. They're changing their armament. They're relying much more on Turkish and Persian-style ranged attacks and armored cavalry uh, as opposed to the sort of old-school Islamic uh, fanatical light cavalry uh, that existed uh, in previous centuries. Uh, They are becoming more of a formidable foe even as the Crusader States are not getting that sort of fervent help that they got uh, earlier on. Now another thing that's going on in the East is that the Crusader States have poor relationships for the most part with the Byzantine Empire during this time. Uh, the Byzantine Empire is the only major Christian power in the area and the only one to which any of the Crusader states have direct access. Well, if you remember, during the First Crusade, the Crusaders had sort of ganked Antioch from the Byzantine Emperor, uh, taken it for themselves instead of, honoring their agreement and returning it to Byzantium, Uh, so the emperor was not terribly willing to support his fellow Christians. Now, for the first few decades after the First Crusade, the Crusader states survived mostly because the surrounding Muslim states were busy fighting each other. There was no one major unified Muslim power in the Middle East ...to stand as a direct threat to the Crusader states. But this starts to change in the 1120s and 1130s. See, there is a Muslim governor named Imad al-Din Zengi... ...who's known to historians simply as Zengi... ...who has taken power over most of inland Syria and northwestern Iraq... Now, Zengi actually grew up in Mosul, a city that has become famous again in recent years uh, during the Iraq War and the aftermath there. Well, Zengi is from this area, but he's not going to stay in this area. See, when he's in his 40s, there is a power vacuum in the Syrian emirate of Aleppo. In the year 1128. Basically, the emir of Aleppo dies. There is no apparent heir. Various people are vying for control, and Zengi takes over. But he is not content to stop there. Zengi has dreams of conquering the city of Damascus. Now, Damascus is an ancient city, as we all know. And at this time, it is an independent, uh, very small but powerful Muslim emirate. Right, Damascus lies at the center of all the trade networks in the Middle East, right? Coming up from the Levant and the Mediterranean coast and then going out inland to Mesopotamia or down south to Egypt, well... Everything's got to go through Damascus. This is a very important place. And it's also important symbolically in the Muslim world. Right? Remember, it had been the capital of the Umayyad Caliphate. So there are a few different reasons why an ambitious Muslim commander might want to control this city. And there are equally obvious reasons why none of the Crusader states want Zengi to control Damascus, right? This will all of a sudden be a major Muslim power occupying not just the crux of Middle Eastern trade, but uh, a position on the borders of uh, the three Southern Crusader states, right? This is something that they cannot tolerate. So, When Zengi tries to conquer Damascus in 1137, uh, King Fulk of Jerusalem actually makes an alliance with the Muslim emir of Damascus and uh, joins with uh, the local Damascan forces to repel Zengi from the city. Zengi attacks again in 1138, and this time he's driven back by a joint force of uh, Byzantine and Antioch troops. Yes, remember how I said that uh, Byzantium and the Crusader states had fallen out? Well, by now, they were sort of uh, reapproaching each other. Antioch had actually just become a vassal of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, Their king had sworn fealty to the emperor. Now, this would not last long. They would ultimately have a falling out, but for now... Uh, The Byzantines were helping, and once again, Zengi's army is driven back from Damascus. But later on, in 1138, he comes back again and is once again turned back by a joint army from Damascus and Jerusalem. Zengi must be a baseball fan because he figures three strikes and you're out. Uh, He looks elsewhere for now to do some conquering. But, for the moment, he is stymied by various alliances. Right? All of his neighbors are either too strong for him to attack directly, or if they are weak, they have strong allies. Uh, he's kind of got to bide his time and wait for the moment to strike. As it turns out, he only has to wait a few years. See, in the year 1143... Emperor John II Komnenos of the Byzantine Empire dies, and he's succeeded by his son Manuel I. Now, this in itself does not give Zengi an opportunity, but what does give him an opening is the fact that Manuel is opposed by his brothers, and he spends the first several months of his reign unable to act. His father's army... Uh, is far from Constantinople at the time, and he is not crowned until they return to the capital in August. And after that, he has to spend several more months attending to domestic affairs, essentially getting his empire together and solidifying his rule. Well, Zengi doesn't wait long. In 1144, a little less than a year later he moves his army towards the county of Edessa. Right? That inland crusader kingdom that is uh, both landlocked and thinly populated. Well, Edessa also has a new leader. Uh, the valiant old warrior king Jocelyn I has been succeeded by his son Jocelyn Second, And Jocelyn II is not quite as experienced and sharp as his dad, but he's not quite a complete idiot either, right? He learns of Zengi's movements, learns that he's about to be attacked, knows that he's not getting help from Emperor Manuel any time this year, so he makes an alliance with a local Muslim emir whose city lies between Edessa and Zengi's army. And then Jocelyn II marches his army out to meet with his new Muslim ally and fight Zengi together in the field. Sounds like a great plan. But Zengi hears about all this, realizes that he's about to meet a superior force in the field, and simply goes around them and besieges the undefended city of Edessa. See, Jocelyn... The second is, as we said, a bit inexperienced, and he has left his capital city completely undefended. There is no one there to man the guard towers. There's no one in the city who knows how to defend against a siege, and the siege only lasts for a few days. Jocelyn is not able to get back to his capital in time to save it, All of the Latin inhabitants are put to the sword uh, and Zengi then allows all of the Muslims and the local people who are Christians uh, to simply live their lives in peace. And just like that, Edessa has become part of Zengi's new kingdom and one of the four crusader states has ceased to exist. We said that Europe was distracted, right? We didn't say Europe was blind. And in 1145, Crusader messengers bring word to Pope Eugene III, who is living in exile in France due to a popular people's rebellion going on in Rome at the time. That's a whole different story. And the word of the fall of Edessa hits Europe like a bolt from the blue. It shocks these people. It's an interesting side note, by the way, this meeting where Pope Eugene hears about the fall of Edessa. This also gives us the first historical mention of Prester John, the legendary Christian king who supposedly lived to the east of the Muslim powers and was battling them. Well, this bishop, Hugh of Jabala, from one of the Crusader states, uh, he brings word of Prester John to the Pope and says, this guy was fighting the Muslims in Persia. And, you know, if the Christians in Europe would just send their own troops, they'd be attacking the Muslims from the west, and Prester John would be attacking from the east And they would roll things up pretty quickly. Now, in the coming centuries, there will be numerous letters written to European leaders, uh, allegedly by Prester John, uh, encouraging various courses of action. Uh, Most of these are obvious forgeries. People are using them for propaganda to try and influence either the leaders or public opinion. There probably was no Prester John. There certainly was no Christian king in Persia at this time. That was, as far as we know, a complete fabrication by Bishop Hugh. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the stories of Prester John were completely baseless. For instance, one possible inspiration could have been the Ethiopian Emperor Yemrahana the II Krestos uh, of Abyssinia. He was known for being very pious. He was well known at the time amongst Egyptian Coptic Christians. So there was a Christian king on the other side of the Muslim powers, but he was to the south and not to the east, and he wasn't particularly interested in fighting anybody. Right? And, and Emperor yamrahana who had ruled a few decades earlier well he's just one possibility the fact is we may never know anyway that was a long sidebar for you know the hardcore history geeks uh listening right now Uh, regardless pope eugene has now in the year 1145 gotten word of the fall of the crusader state of edessa And like his predecessor, Pope Urban, he decides to act. And he delivers a message to King Louis VII of France, calling for a second crusade. And he actually goes a little bit further. He commissions his friend, a monk named Bernard of Clairvaux, now known as Saint Bernard, to go and speak to King Louis in person. Bernard does this. He also speaks to Louis' wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who will feature later in this story and who would later on be the mother of Richard the Lionheart of Third Crusade fame. Well, she and Bernard and Louis all sit down together and uh, Louis agrees to go on crusade. And then afterward, he goes out in public and stands beside uh, Bernard, who addresses some assembled knights and lords. And Bernard gives a much shorter speech than Pope Urban did back in the day, but he gives a speech announcing the crusade. He says, quote, O ye who listen to me! "'Hasten to appease the anger of heaven, but no longer implore its goodness by vain complaints. "'Clothe yourselves in sackcloth, but also cover yourselves with your impenetrable bucklers. "'The din of arms, the danger, the labors, the fatigues of war, "'are the penances that God now imposes upon you. "'Hasten then to expiate your sins by victories over the infidels, "'and let the deliverance of the holy places be the reward of your repentance.' Cursed be he who does not stain his sword with blood. Unquote. And according to the stories, the crowd responds with the already famous crusader war cry, Deus Vault. Seems that many of these French knights are also eager for a crusade. Bernard would go on to Germany. He would speak there with the Holy Roman Emperor, Conrad III. Uh, Conrad has recently made peace with Pope Eugene. The Empire and the Papacy are on the same page for once, and uh, Conrad agrees to go on the Crusade as well. Uh, One major European power that does not join in the Crusade is England, Uh, This is mostly because King Stephen is busy dealing with his own internal turmoil, right? There was still fallout, a lot of it, uh, from the uh, Civil War, Uh, and there were really no royal troops available to go on crusade. Now, that does not mean there were no English people involved. There were some English and Scottish knights and nobles who came on their own, independent from the king, Uh, but... A storm forces them to land in Portugal instead of in the Middle East, and we'll talk about them uh, towards the end of the episode. Regardless, these missions by St. Bernard to the crowned heads of Europe would mark the beginning of the Second Crusade, an event which historian John Norwich calls, quote, an ignominious fiasco and which the Catholic Encyclopedia of all places calls, quote, a wretched failure. Now, as with the First Crusade, there is a little bit of fallout at home with the Second Crusade, and that fallout comes once again against European Jews. There is a French monk named Rodolphe, who travels to the Rhine Valley in 1147 preaching against Jews. And throughout the Rhine Valley, there are forced conversions, and these forced conversions oftentimes escalate into massacres. Now, what's interesting about this series of events is that the massacres are not nearly as awful as they were during the First Crusade. Right in the First Crusade, something like a quarter of the Jews in the Rhineland are killed as the people's crusaders pass through. During the Second Crusade, they're a little bit better prepared. Uh, In the city of Cologne, they actually get help from the local archbishop, and uh, he lets the Jews arm up, and uh, he gives them a local castle that they can hold on to for the time being and defend themselves from this wave of anti-Jewish mob violence. and Unsurprisingly, in Cologne in particular, the Jewish population goes unharmed. It's amazing what some defensive fortifications and weapons can do for your health. But the Jews throughout the rest of the Rhineland have varying levels of success. Um, For instance, in the city of Mainz, the archbishop, who was not just any archbishop, he was one of the electors of the Holy Roman Empire, one of the dozen or so most important people in the empire. He himself personally takes a couple of dozen Jews into his own house to protect them and the mob breaks in and kills all of these people despite the fact they're they're literally under the roof and under the protection of this very powerful man so right if you were a Jew in the Rhineland in this era some cities were much better or worse than others uh, to be existing in now as radolf is doing all this preaching whipping the locals up into an anti-jewish frenzy uh, bernard of clairvaux gets news of this he writes radolf a very sternly worded letter telling him to knock it off radolf ignores him and when this happens saint bernard goes in person uh, to the rhineland and orders radolf to get back to his monastery and never to preach in public again. And Radolf does, and seeing the revered Bernard of Clairvaux give Radolf this dressing down, the people of the Rhineland stop opposing the Jews. But unfortunately, the oppression has already spread. Even as the pogroms in the Rhineland are dying down, Jews are seeing persecution throughout much of France much of Germany and uh, much of Eastern Europe as well and to be honest a lot of this is just general uh, pro-Christian fervor if you're talking about sort of a sense of Christian nationalism that the popes and the emperors are trying to create well these people are looking for non-Christians to fight and It doesn't always mean going to the Middle East, right? For some, for many in uh, Germany and in Denmark and in Poland, this means crusading right there at home. In modern-day northern Poland and northeast Germany, at this time in 1147, Uh, These areas are still almost entirely pagan, right? They follow the old gods of the people who have lived in the area for centuries. And there are occasional border clashes with German and Polish Christians, as there will be along any border in this era, but relations are mostly peaceful. Uh, Christians have been trying for a couple of centuries to peaceably convert, these pagan peoples with very limited success most of the trouble as i understand it was linguistic you 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 simply did not have people who spoke the language up there who could go preach effectively and you certainly didn't have any sort of religious writings in those works because those people didn't have a written language uh, it was a little harder to preach to those people than to preach to say you know, other Germans or other Poles or people with at least the same language. But things had been relatively peaceful up there until around 1107 to 1110. Sometime around that period, an anonymous letter called the Magdeburg letter started circulating in Germany and in Poland, and this letter called for a crusade against these pagan peoples on the Baltic coast, a people called the Wends. And incidentally, uh, this letter, in addition to talking about uh, their pagan ways, also emphasized how much better their land is. This land around the southern coast of the Baltic Sea, you look at it on a map, it looks pretty far north, but the climate there is... You know, For my American friends, sort of like uh, the Pacific Northwest. When you think of a city like Seattle or Portland, yeah, it's fairly far north, but because of the way the winds are blowing and the way the ocean currents are in that area, it's actually surprisingly warm and pleasant, and there's some very good farmland there. And this region where the winds live, the Magdeburg letter calls it, quote, Our Jerusalem. It is really driving home not just the idea of a crusade but pairing that with the idea of a promised land. Well, in the decades after the writing of the Magdeburg letter relations between the Christian peoples in Germany and Poland and the Wendish peoples uh, those relations deteriorated. And now several of the Saxon kings in what is now northern Germany, they are hesitant to go all the way to the Holy Land on a crusade, but they still want a crusade, right? Remember, a crusade is a holy war. If you die while you're out on a crusade, or if you live and see the crusade through to its end... All your sins are forgiven, right? You can do anything you want when you're on a crusade because you're going to be forgiven. You know, for these North German kings, that's just a great deal. They, They can go campaign against the Wends. They can rape. They can pillage. They can do whatever they want. They get all the benefits of going on a holy war. Well, they present their case to Bernard, and he passes it on to Pope Eugene, who declares that Hey, the battles against the Wends in northern Europe are part of the crusade. Quote, Until such a time as, by God's help, they shall either be converted or deleted. Unquote. Now, the German, Danish, and Polish crusaders in northern Europe are somewhat successful. They win a couple of battles, but they aren't actually able to hold any land and they aren't actually able to make any Christian converts in the area. They're effectively unable to penetrate further into Wendish territory, and the Wendish Crusaders decide to leave after accepting tribute. Incidentally, their Crusader oath expressly forbid quitting and taking tribute, so... According to the rules, anything they did, uh, their sins were not forgiven, according to the rules of the Crusade, if you believe in that kind of thing. Ironically, those same areas would be conquered piecemeal by individual German and Danish kings over the next 50 years purely for ordinary, earthly reasons of political ambition. And by the year 1200, Christianity would spread as far as the modern-day Baltic Republics. That whole area of far northern Germany and northern Poland, well, that is when that part of Europe became Christianized. But it wasn't because of the Second Crusade... The Second Crusade failed there. That area became Christianized because of totally unrelated stuff having to do with politics, and it happened later. Well, okay, you might say, what's going on with the main crusade? Here's what's going on with the main crusade. Just like the First Crusade, the leaders decide to take different routes. And they decide to do this mostly for logistic reasons, right? You bring too many troops through the same area at the same time, the local infrastructure is not going to be able to sustain all those guys, you're not going to be able to feed them, then they're going to start looting on their own, you're just going to run into trouble. Better to move your armies separately and put less strain on the areas you're going through and uh, meet up when you get somewhere where you actually want to do battle. We will see again and again throughout this story just how important logistics are. There are two main armies, one under French King Louis Seventh, and the other under the German Holy Roman Emperor Conrad Third. Conrad's army is 20,000 men, almost all infantry. It's hard to say for sure because the German knights, unlike the French knights, traditionally fought on foot. So when you look at French numbers, and they're talking about knights, they're talking about horsemen, and then everybody else is, you know, fighting on foot with spears and stuff, that 20,000 men from Conrad, it's hard to say how many are, you know, just regular spearmen or archers or something like that, and how many are heavily clad and armored knights with... You know, big long swords, uh, like you might picture them. Difficult to say. Uh, As far as Louis' force goes, uh, his is slightly smaller. He has roughly 15,000 men. Uh, About 1,500 of those are mounted knights. Uh, The rest are infantry. Of the two armies, Conrad's is the first to arrive in Anatolia. Uh, now, he intends to wait there uh, for Louis, but his nephew, a young man named Frederick Barbarossa, who would become famous later on in his own right, well, this young man, Frederick Barbarossa, gets into a skirmish with some Byzantine troops. And to avoid any wide-scale conflict with fellow Christians... Conrad decides he is going to leave Anatolia, which means he has to move into unfriendly territory. So he decides he's going to attack the Sultanate of Rum. This is a middling Muslim power in central Anatolia. And he splits his army in two. Now, his half uh, he uses to attack directly ...towards the Sultanate's capital of Iconium, uh, right in the center of Anatolia. And the other half of his army he puts under his brother's command... ...to head down the Mediterranean coast in sort of a wide-scale flanking maneuver... ...presumably trying to cut off supplies. But his decision is baffling for a couple reasons. First off, he had to know that the Sultanate is well defended... ...and uh, therefore he should be bringing all the troops he can to the main battle, and number two, he also had to know that uh, Emperor Manuel of Byzantium has been trying to conquer Iconium for pretty much the entire time he's been emperor, so why Conrad didn't ask for help from the Byzantines to do something they wanted to do anyway, well, that's a bit of a mystery. Well, the Sultan of Rum does not wait For Conrad to come all the way to Iconium, he sends his troops out to meet Conrad in the field, and being a Turkish ruler, his troops fight in the Turkish style. They are almost entirely cavalry archers, and they will sort of ride right up to Conrad's troops, shoot a bunch of arrows at them, run away again... Uh, they'll do this several times, and then eventually uh, they uh, pretend to be retreating. Right? They're just so scared of Conrad's constant uh, marching towards them. So Conrad sends his few-mounted cavalry uh, chasing after the Turkish cavalry archers, trying to you know, sort of run them down and uh, eliminate them once and for all. And then the Turkish, once uh, they're safely out of range of Conrad's infantry will they just turn around and defeat his cavalry while they're on their own. And then the Turks are able to harass Conrad's army all the way back to Byzantine territory. And a lot of his men are lost. In large part, this failure is Simply because Conrad underestimates how deep in enemy territory he's about to go. Right? Emperor Manuel's territory looks a lot bigger on the map than it actually is in practice. A lot of that territory at this time, that is marked as quote unquote Byzantine land, is really a no man's land full of Turkish nomads. And the outcome of this debacle is that most of Conrad's men never returned to Byzantium. We actually have a record of uh, Conrad III's thoughts on this incident. He writes in an official letter to the Abbot of Corvey, quote, We had reached Nicaea with our army entire and strong. Wishing to complete our journey quickly, we hastened to set out for Iconium under the guidance of men who knew the road. We carried with us as many necessities as possible, and behold, when ten days' journey were accomplished and the same amount remained to be traversed, food for the whole host had almost given out, but especially for the horses. At the same time, the Turks did not cease to attack and slaughter the crowd of foot soldiers who were unable to follow the army. We pitied the fate of our suffering people, perishing by famine and by the arrows of the enemy. And, by the advice of our princes and barons, we led the army back from that desert land to the sea, in order that it might regain its strength. We preferred to preserve the army for greater achievements, rather than to win so bloody a victory over archers." That's something, isn't it? You can imagine being ten days from friendly territory, ten days from your destination, and realizing you have less than ten days' worth of food. That is going to have an impact on your psyche. Incidentally, remember Conrad split his army? Well, the other half, uh, the half commanded by his brother is also defeated, and almost all of them are killed out in the field. So Conrad takes the remnant of his army to Constantinople to await the arrival of Louis and the French. Well, By the time that French army arrives in Constantinople, Manuel, that Byzantine emperor, he has signed a truce with the Sultanate of Rome. He's not going to help the Crusaders. His armies are at home. And they're at home for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, he is being threatened by a Norman Sicilian king, a guy named Roger II, and he's worried about that potential. And uh, number two, his armies are a little bit concerned about the Crusaders themselves. Right, remember, there is... A history of distrust there. The fact that Manuel has signed a truce with the Sultanate, even as their crusader brothers were being killed by the Sultanate, well, that makes some of the French knights very angry. And a few of them propose joining with Norman Sicilian King Roger II and sacking Constantinople... Maybe that's how they should go on this crusade. Would not be the last time, by the way, that some crusaders got this idea, but Louis is friendly with Manuel and uh, does no such thing. The French proceed onward through uh, the Byzantine Empire without major incident. However, despite... Louis being so friendly with Manuel, uh, Manuel still has to deal with Roger II, this uh, Sicilian guy he's going to attack anyway. Uh, He will not be able to help the Crusaders. And Louis and his army and Conrad and the remainder of his army all proceed towards Jerusalem. Now, here's where they encounter a problem. Unlike with the First Crusade, the Second Crusade has no real stated goal. They're just sort of going to Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem's already a Christian crusader state. Presumably they're supposed to go crusading somewhere else after that. So the solution to this problem of not having a goal is to confer with the kings of the various crusader states. So Conrad sails directly to Acre, which is a major city in the kingdom of Jerusalem, and Louis proceeds overland to Antioch, where his wife Eleanor's uncle Raymond is king. Now, along the way, his army is harassed by Turkish horse archers, much like Conrad had to deal with, Uh, and the archers are also sort of running ahead of the crusader army and burning all the crops. So as the crusaders come through, they're not able to forage and their supplies are running out. So hungry and unable to proceed, Uh, Louis and his army stop in a coastal city they send for ships. But there are some storms, and only a few of these ships actually arrive. So Louis proceeds along with some of his retainers and a few other knights. uh, He goes ahead to Antioch and uh, has his army proceed by land. Most of them are killed on the way by archers or starvation. So now you have not only uh, Conrad having most of his army destroyed, but the same has happened to Louis, and they haven't even really fought anybody yet. But Louis does get to Antioch, and things seem to go swimmingly at first. His uh, wife Eleanor is uh, getting along with her uncle, and... uh, Right, Uncle Raymond, this king of Antioch, looks like he really wants to reconquer Edessa. Now, there are some disagreements over how exactly they're going to go about this. Right, Louis wants to complete his pilgrimage to Jerusalem first before engaging in any military activity. And Raymond is very much like, come on, let's go, let's... Go reconquer Edessa tomorrow. But as they're negotiating, it comes out that Raymond is making advances towards Eleanor. His niece, by the way, lest you forget. And he wants her to divorce Louis and move in with him. There are even rumors that Eleanor and her uncle Raymond are having an affair. Now, we don't have historical confirmation of this, but there are a couple of things that have to make you wonder if whether it wasn't true. For one thing, uh, Louis leaves from Antioch for Acre abruptly, and he leaves by ship, and he takes Eleanor with him under arrest. So she was probably going unwillingly. For another thing, Louis would later have the marriage with Eleanor annulled on the basis that she had failed to produce a male heir for him. Well, She would then go on to marry Henry of England and have uh, a couple of sons for him so one wonders if there wasn't something else going on there in the marriage anyway for now in the second crusade there will be no help coming from Antioch that is one of the three remaining crusader states that is simply not going to be participating well in June of 1148 both Louis and Conrad have finally arrived in the kingdom of Jerusalem, and they meet with the feudal parliament of the kingdom uh, in the city of Acre. And there they find out that a man named Alfonso of Provence, a important nobleman in his own right, well, they had sent him to the other crusader state to Tripoli, and uh, he had been poisoned there. Uh, in a complicated political plot that we really aren't going to get into here but point being due to infighting amongst the crusaders there was not going to be any help coming from tripoli either now the second crusade is going to be proceeding with at most one of three crusader states and with two armies that are very badly denuded to say the least Well, the remaining Europeans and the knights of the Kingdom of Jerusalem decide that they're going to make a bold move. Remember that city of Damascus, the one that Zengi couldn't take? Zengi, the powerful Muslim warlord, could not take this city three times. He tried and failed. Well, the Crusaders decide they're going to try and take it. Now, you might think that's awfully ambitious. Yeah, but it's a high-risk, high-reward proposition, right? See, the Crusaders assume that the relatively smallish emirate of Damascus is eventually going to fall. It's either going to fall to Zengi or to another Seljuk leader named Nur ad-Din. Either way, that's going to be really bad news for the Crusader states. If they think they're in a precarious position having a Muslim power hold Damascus now, wait till it's a major Muslim power with some clout. Right, Much better if Damascus is in Crusader hands. We have the story of the battle written down by a contemporary historian named William of Tyre. This is one of the more vivid accounts you'll hear from a medieval source. And here is what he has to say. Quote, On the western side of Damascus, from which our troops approached, and on the northern side too, The city is enclosed far and wide by orchards, which are like a dense woods or a shady forest, extending five miles or more towards Lebanon. These orchards are enclosed by mud walls. Rock is not plentiful in that region, so that their ownership will not be in doubt, and also to keep out trespassers. The orchards are, therefore, enclosed by defensive walls in such a way that each man's possessions are identified. Paths and public roads, though they are narrow, are left open so that the gardeners and those who have charge of the orchards can make their way to the city with the animals which carry the fruit. These orchards are the city's greatest protection. Because of their density, because of the number of the trees, and because of the narrowness of the roads, it seemed difficult, indeed almost impossible, for those who wished to approach Damascus to do so from that side. From the beginning, however, our princes had decided to bring the army in through this area to gain access to the city. There was a double reason for this. On the one hand, it was done so that after the most securely guarded areas in which the Damascenes had the greatest faith had been occupied, what remained would seem easy and would be more readily accomplished. On the other hand, the approach was made in this way so that the army would not be deprived of the benefits of food and water. The king of Jerusalem, therefore, sent his fighting formations in first through those narrow orchard paths. The army could scarcely make headway, and did so with great difficulty, both because it was hemmed in by the narrow roads, and also because it was hindered by the ambushes of the men who were hidden in the thickets. Also, the army had sometimes to engage the enemies, who appeared and seized the circuitous paths. All the people of Damascus came out together, and descended upon the aforesaid orchards in order to block the army's passage, both by stealth and by open attack. There were, furthermore, walls and large tall houses among the orchards. These were defended by soldiers whose possessions lay nearby. They defended the orchard walls by shooting arrows and other missiles, and allowed no one to approach them, while the arrows shot from on high made the public roads exceedingly dangerous for those who wished to pass through them. Nor were our men beset with formidable obstacles only on one side. Rather, on every side there was equal peril for the unwary, and danger of sudden and unforeseen death. There were, moreover, men with lances hiding inside of the walls. When these men saw our men passing by, they would stab at them as they passed through little peepholes in the walls which were cleverly designed for this purpose, so that those hiding inside could scarcely be seen. Many are said to have perished miserably in that day in this way. Countless other kinds of danger, too, faced those who wished to pass through those narrow paths. As our men became aware of this, they pushed on more fiercely. When they had broken down the barricades in the orchards, they occupied them eagerly. Those whom they discovered within the walls or in the houses, they pierced with their swords or threw into chains as captives. When the townsmen who had come out to defend the orchards heard this, they feared that they would perish as the others had. They left the orchards, and returned to the city in droves. Thus when the defenders either had been slaughtered or had been turned to flight, a free path forward lay open to our men. The cavalry forces of the townsmen, and of those who had come to their assistance, realized that our army was coming through the orchards in order to besiege the city and they accordingly approached the stream which flowed by the town. This they did with their bows and ballistas, so that they could fight off the Latin army, which was fatigued by its journey, and also so that they could prevent the thirsty men from reaching the river and the water which was so necessary for them. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second just to kind of explain what he's saying. Is there's you know, a river by the orchard and the... Uh, remaining defenders of Damascus have sort of formed up on the other side. They've got some cavalry, and they've got, more importantly, some archers and some ballistas, which are uh, siege engines that shoot uh, very large arrows, like spear-sized arrows. Um, And they've got all this uh, force lined up on the other side of this river to keep the Crusaders from having access to any water. Returning to the account, quote, Our men hurried to the river, which they had heard was nearby, in order to relieve their thirst, which had grown intense from the difficulties of their labors and the dense clouds of dust which were raised by the feet of horses and men. There they saw such a multitude of the enemy that they halted for a time. After a while they collected their men. They were given strength and hardiness by necessity. Once and then again they strove to get to the water, but in vain. When the king of Jerusalem and his men struggled vainly, the emperor, who commanded the formations in the rear, the emperor meaning Conrad here, uh, the emperor, who commanded the formations in the rear, demanded to know why the army was not moving forward. He was told that the enemy had seized the river and that they were blocking the progress of our men. When he learned of this, the emperor was angered and, together with his lieutenants, he speedily made his way through the French king's ranks to the place where the fight for the river was going on. They dismounted from their horses and became as infantrymen, as the Germans are accustomed to do in the crisis of battle. With shields in hand, they fought the enemy hand-to-hand with swords. The enemy, who had earlier resisted valiantly, were unable to withstand the attack. They relinquished the river bank and fled at full speed to the city. Unquote. William, our chronicler, he sort of adds some color here when he's describing the fight. He says, quote, In this combat, the Lord Emperor is said to have performed a feat which will be remembered through the ages. It is related that one of the enemy was resisting manfully and vigorously, and that the Emperor with one blow cut off this enemy soldier's head and neck with the left shoulder and arm attached, together with part of his side, despite the fact that the foe was wearing a cuirass, At this deed, the citizens, both those who witnessed it and those who learned of it from others, were thrown into such a fright that they despaired of resisting and even of life itself. Unquote. Now... Whether or not Emperor Conrad III ever struck such a blow is doubtful. That would be quite the swing to basically cut off a third of a person while slicing through their breastplate. But today we have Marvel action movies, and back during the Crusader times... People had stories like this one brought back from the Middle East and from other places of adventure. What we do know for sure is that the Crusaders uh, would build fortifications to cut the city off from reinforcement. They launch an initial attack on the walls but are repulsed. Now, I've seen this written up even in so-called reliable sources, as if the crusaders in religious frenzy ran up and beat on the walls, uh, believing that the walls would fall of their own accord before the armies of God. That's made up. This is a common thing in medieval battles. They're going to launch an initial attack to find out what kind of defenses they are facing. And uh, after this initial attack, while the crusaders are... Going about their siege, the governor of Damascus, a man named Mu'in ad-Din-Unur, he sends for help from two rival emirs, uh, one in Mosul and one in Aleppo. The crusaders, meanwhile, are making steady progress. But the walls on this side of the city, right the side by the orchards, are very well reinforced. And some of the leaders, particularly the Templars, uh, suggest moving to the other side of the city. This is a softer target. A lot of the bricks are just soft clay. And the Crusaders go ahead with the move, which turns out to be a disaster. And William of Tyre blames the Knights Templar for taking a bribe from the Defenders. Here's how he tells the story. He says, quote, The city, as we have said, was in despair, and its citizens held no hope of resisting or of being saved, but rather they were packing their bags and preparing to leave. At this point, for our sins, they began to work on the greed of our men. Using money, they attempted to conquer the hearts of those whose bodies they could not overcome. With consummate skill, they proposed a variety of arguments to some of our princes, and they promised and delivered a stupendous sum of money to them so that the princes would strive and labor to lift the siege. They persuaded these princes to assume the role of the traitor Judas. Corrupted by gifts and promises, led on by greed, the root of all evil, these princes fell in with the crime. By impious suggestions, they persuaded the kings and the leaders of the pilgrims, who trusted their good faith and industry, to leave the orchards and to lead the army to the opposite side of the city. To camouflage their plot, they alleged that on the opposite side of Damascus, which faced south and west, there were neither orchards to strengthen the city nor any moat or river to hinder their approach to the walls. The wall, they said, was low, and was made of sun-baked bricks, and it would scarcely withstand the first attack. There, they asserted, neither engines nor any great force would be needed. In the first attack, the wall could immediately be torn down by hand, and it would not be difficult to break into the city. The kings and all the leaders of the army believed them, and they deserted the places which they had earlier won with so much sweat and at the cost of the lives of so many of their men. They transferred all of their formations, and, under the leadership of the traders, they camped on the opposite side of the city. There, they found themselves located far from access to water, deprived of the abundance of fruit, and lacking almost all supplies. They were saddened, and they discovered all too late that they had maliciously been led to move from a region of abundance. The food supply in the camp began to run out. Before the men had set out on the expedition, they had been persuaded to believe that the city would be quickly taken, and they had brought along provisions for only a few days. This was especially true for the pilgrims, nor could they be blamed for it, since they were unfamiliar with the country. They had been persuaded, too, that the city would be taken at once in the initial attacks, And they were assured in the meantime, a large army could be fed on the fruit supply which they could get for nothing, even if all other food were lacking. The doubtful men deliberated publicly and privately as to what they were to do. To return to the places they had left seemed hard, even impossible, for when our men had left, the enemy saw that what they desired had been accomplished. They had entered those places more strongly than before and had barricaded the roads by which our men had earlier entered. They had blocked them by piling up beams and large rocks, and had sent in an immense company of archers who made access almost impossible. To attack the city from the area where the camps were now located would, on the other hand, involve delay, but the lack of food supplies would not allow a long respite. The pilgrim princes consulted one another seeing the manifest discomfort of the men whose spiritual care and whose crusade had been confided to them, and knowing that they could make no headway, they decided to return, despising the false pretenses of the men who had betrayed them. Unquote. What William of Tyre does not say in his account, but is just as important as the crusaders' moving locations, ah, The emirs of Mosul and Aleppo had indeed answered the emir of Damascus's call, and both of them were standing by nearby. The crusaders feared that one or both of those emirs would get involved, and if they lost that battle, one of those emirs would end up in charge of Damascus, and the position of the crusader states would be weakened. So again, one more reason just to retreat. And once again, in this period of a couple decades, the city of Damascus is saved from being conquered by receiving help just in the nick of time. Now, most of the Crusader army, along with Louis' half, would all return home. Holy Roman Emperor Conrad would go on to the city of Ascalon, which is on the ...border between the kingdom of Jerusalem and Egypt. And his army is supposed to meet there with the other crusaders for another siege. But due to mutual distrust, after the failed siege of Damascus, no one else comes. And both the Middle Eastern Christian, William of Tyre, and the German Christian, Conrad... They recognize the rift that the Second Crusade has caused between the various crusading kingdoms. And here is what William of Tyre says at the end of his account. He says, Thus, a company of kings and princes such as we have not read of through all the ages had gathered and, for our sins, had been forced to return, covered with shame and disgrace, with their mission unfulfilled. They returned to the kingdom by the same route over which they had come. Henceforth, so long as they remained in the east, they regarded the ways of our princes with suspicion. With good reason, they turned down all their wicked plans, and henceforth the leaders of the crusade were lukewarm in the service of the kingdom. Even after they had returned to their own lands, they constantly remembered the injuries they had suffered and detested our princes as wicked men. Nor were they alone affected, for they also caused others who had not been there to neglect the care of the kingdom, so that henceforth those who undertook the pilgrimages were fewer and less fervent. Even today, those who come are careful lest they fall into a trap, and they strive to return home as soon as possible. Conrad's analysis is a little bit more restrained, but reading between the lines, you can see clearly that he is very displeased by his experience on the Second Crusade. In another letter to the Abbot of Corvey, he says, quote, "'When following the advice of the Common Council, "'we had gone to Damascus, "'and after a great deal of trouble "'had pitched our camps before the gate of the city. "'It was certainly near being taken.' But certain ones, whom we least suspected, treasonably asserted that the city was impregnable on that side, and hastily led us to another position, where no water could be supplied for the troops, and where access was impossible to anyone. And thus all, equally indignantly grieved, returned, leaving the undertaking uncompleted. Nevertheless, they all promised unanimously that they would make an expedition against Ascalon, and they set the place in time. Having arrived there, according to agreement, we found scarcely anyone. In vain, we waited eight days for the troops. Deceived a second time, we returned to our own affairs. Unquote. And continued distrust between various Crusader factions would not shrink over the years, it would grow. It would continue to doom future Crusades. That was not the Second Crusade's only negative impact on the Crusader cause. Uh, in addition, because of its failure, it becomes harder to get people fired up for future Crusades, right? Remember that final image of the First Crusade with King Baldwin, I'm sorry, defender of the Holy Sepulchre, Baldwin, holding the true cross and leading his troops to defend against the Egyptian charge, right? All of that is very poetic when you win. But when the crusaders coming home are saying, Yeah, we went out in the desert and we got shot at and most of us died and then we went into a siege and uh, some of our own guys betrayed us so we didn't win the siege either and we were really hungry and a bunch of people starved and uh, yeah, I barely made it home. That's a little bit less inspiring. You can take the image of... Baldwin's final battle in the First Crusade. You can imagine that on a recruitment poster in modern times. The Second Crusade does not have a recruitment poster moment in it for the Crusaders. It's all miserable. If you're trying to sell a future Crusade... You're going to have to explain to people how it's not going to turn out like the Second Crusade. And finally, the third negative impact of the Second Crusade negative if you are a crusader is that the kingdom of Jerusalem and Byzantium will now team up to fight the Egyptians. Right? Jerusalem realizes. Uh, She can't rely on Tripoli or Antioch because they're all playing politics. So Jerusalem goes right to Big Daddy, Manuel, in Byzantium, and they start uh, fighting the Egyptians. Uh, They end up taking Ascalon, I believe, in 1153. But from 1150 to about 1190, uh, the kingdom of Jerusalem, with a lot of Byzantine help, significantly eats into uh, Egyptian territory. And this constant Egyptian defeat after defeat after defeat will lead to a change in leadership and the rise of a general named Saladin. So even this apparent success by the Kingdom of Jerusalem after the Second Crusade, well, would only be temporary and it would help to create... Perhaps the Crusader State's greatest enemy. But, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, despite the Second Crusade's failure in the Middle East, it would have serious implications in Europe, specifically in Iberia, the peninsula on which you will find the modern nations of Spain and Portugal. At this time, Iberia is split uh, between a number of rival kingdoms, some of which are ruled by Christians, some by Muslims. The Muslims are mostly uh, nominally part of the kingdom of Al-Andalus, but uh, various rivalries make that more complicated than it sounds. Uh, Similarly, the Christian kingdoms are constantly uh, uniting and dividing as various overlapping nobles uh, get married and die off. You could write volumes and volumes and volumes about this period of time in the Iberian Peninsula. But there was a broad movement among the Christian kingdoms called the Reconquista. Uh, which means reconquest. And this was an ideological movement that sought to re-Christianize all of the Iberian Peninsula, basically push the uh, boundary line between Christianity and Islam uh, to the Straits of Gibraltar. However... In practice, uh, this conflict was often more political than it was religious. Uh, People would switch sides, alliances were not always just Christian against Muslim. For instance, the legendary General El Cid switched more than once between the Christian and Muslim factions during his career. Uh, It's a complicated time. but. In the year 1147, right, the year the Second Crusade is kicking off, Portugal is ruled by King Alfonso I. Now, Alfonso did not begin his career as a king, All right, he started as a 12 year old count in exile. He didn't even have territory to his name because he had been banished by his own mother from the county of Portucale. Now, Portucale is what us modern folks would call Oporto, the major city and the surrounding environs in northern Portugal. Well, that's where Alfonso is from, and that small county of Portucale. Uh, would eventually become his base, but for now he's in exile, and in 1122, at the age of 14, uh, he will become a legal adult, because that is when you become an adult in Iberia at this time, and he will also be a knight. He at least has something to his name, and taking advantage of a rivalry between his mother and a rival count, Alfonso will seize the county from her and become Count Alfonso in his own right. He would then go on to spend most of his life fighting against the Moors, although sometimes against rival Christian kings. Again, this was complicated. But one of his most major uh, victories was in 1139, right? eight years before the Second Crusade. He had won a major battle against the Moors, Another word for these North African Muslim dynasties ruling uh, in Iberia at the time. He had won a major battle against them at the Battle of Orique, and that had secured most of the southern half of what is now Portugal. After that Battle of Orique, Alfonso is acclaimed as king by his troops. Uh, but it wouldn't be until a little bit later in 1143 that he would get any kind of international uh, recognition. Uh, it was then that he would defeat his cousin, uh, a man confusingly also named Alfonso, Alfonso the Seventh of Leon. Alfonso the First of Portugal would have to defeat him in the Battle of Valdevez in order to gain recognition as a complete independent kingdom as opposed to a county uh, that is a vassal of León, Portugal is now an independent kingdom. And now we're caught up. It's 1147, and Alfonso I rules most of modern-day Portugal. As for the portions he does not rule, he has a truce with the Muslim king of Evora in the southeast, And to the southwest, he does not have any kind of treaty with the Emir of Lisbon. Now, most people are familiar with Lisbon as the modern-day capital of Portugal. But what many people don't realize is that Lisbon is actually one of the most ancient cities in the world. Amongst European capitals, for instance, it ranks second only to Athens uh, in terms of being the oldest. You can go there and find archaeological digs where people have dug up ancient pottery from the Phoenicians. This city was a Celtic trading center way back in the 6th, 7th, and 8th centuries B.C., Trading with the Phoenicians, and there's a reason for that it has an excellent position for trade. It's located on the Atlantic coast you can very easily sail up the coast to France or England or sail down and uh you know trade in North Africa or in uh, southern europe it's It's you know, a prime piece of coastline and It is at the mouth of a river, the Tagus River, which flows down from eastern Spain. So you also have all kinds of easy water access to inland trade. And this city is a lot like Damascus in that regard, isn't it? A major trading hub. And it remains, for the time being, in Moorish hands, an emirate under the rule of Al-Andalus, the larger Muslim kingdom in Spain. And another thing that Lisbon has in common with Damascus is not just its prime trade location, but also its history. Right Again, it's an ancient place. Just as Damascus has incredible meaning for the Turks, the Arabs, and the Crusader states, Lisbon has meaning for the Portuguese and the Moors. Well, at this time, fortunately for Alfonso I, his rival Alfonso VII of Leon is also at odds with the Moors. Remember, there is this sort of vague, loose alliance of the christians and the muslims against each other even though again that doesn't always hold uh, but alfonso the 7th of leon goes to pope eugene and asks the pope to extend the second crusade right? that is the announcement of a holy war with the forgiveness of sins attached to it alfonso the 7th asks the pope to extend that crusade ...to the Iberian Peninsula. And Eugene agrees, just as he did for the Wendish Crusaders, right? Those Crusaders in Germany and Poland we talked about a little while ago. Uh, He agrees to not only extend the forgiveness of sins... ...and the holy war aspect of the fight to the Iberian Peninsula... ...but he goes so far as to, uh, in his official bull, right? His announcement of the second crusade uh, that is written down and distributed. He specifically tells Iberian crusaders not to go to the crusader states in the Middle East. He tells them to stay and fight in Iberia and uh, fight the Moors there. That will be their crusade. And in addition to having their knights and lords and all their soldiers and everybody told to stay home and not go to the Middle East, both Alfonso's are both hoping for some outside help, that some of the other crusaders are going to stop off in Iberia and maybe give them a hand. Well, as it turns out, this actually happens. See... In May of 1147, a contingent of Crusaders leads from Dartmouth in England. Remember earlier we briefly mentioned some Crusaders who came from England and didn't make it to the Holy Land? Well, here they are. And in addition to the 6,000 soldiers from the British Isles who were on these ships, uh, there are also 5,000 soldiers from Germany... And uh, 2,000 more from uh, Flanders, which is modern-day Belgium. And all of these guys were intending to sail directly from England to Jerusalem. Uh, But weather would force the ships to stop on the Portuguese coast. And they would stop at the northern city of Porto on the 16th of June, 1147. This would put them right in the same city as our buddy King Alfonso I. And the local bishop convinces some of the Crusader leaders to meet with King Alfonso, and they do. And he asks for their help in conquering the city of Lisbon. This important, symbolic, and trade city that he does not have a truce with, that is still ruled by a Muslim emir. And he says that they will not only be crusading, but that they can also get rich. See, they can loot all of the Muslim-owned goods in the city, right? All these Muslims own stuff. They've got valuables in their homes, presumably. Well, geez, if you just help me take the city, you guys can have all that. I just want the city. And the crusaders agree. So they hop back in their ships and they sail down to the city of Lisbon uh, along with uh, some of Alfonso's troops. And on the evening of June 30th, 1147, the crusaders make landfall. And uh, the emir of Lisbon hasn't had much warning, but he's had enough to sort of get uh, a rudimentary force together at the landing site. These are... You know local troops uh, lightly armed and they're you know driven back by the Crusaders who establish a beachhead um, and the primary account we have of this particular siege is written by an English chronicler who goes by the name Osburnus now this is a pseudonym right the writer is actually anonymous but You can tell from the way that this text was written that whoever Osburnus was, this man was there with the English Crusaders participating in the action. And here is his description of Lisbon as the Crusaders saw it when they arrived. He says, quote, The city of Lisbon, at the time of our arrival, consisted of 60,000 families paying taxes. This figure includes the suburbs round about, except the free ones which pay taxes to no one. A circular wall there surrounds the top of the hill, and, at the left and right, the city walls descend to the banks of the Tagus River. The suburbs, down below the city wall, ...are cut into the banks of the river in such a way that each of them has a superbly fortified citadel. The place is girded with pitfalls. The city was populous beyond belief, for, as we learn from its alcade or governor, after the capture of the city, ...it had 154,000 men, not counting women and children, but including the citizens of Scantarum, ...who had been expelled during this year from their stronghold, and who were living in Lisbon as guests and immigrants... This number also included the leading citizens of Sintra, Almada, and Palmela, and many merchants from all parts of Spain and Africa. Although there were many citizens, the city had only 15,000 lances and shields with which to arm its men. They therefore came out in shifts, exchanging their weapons with one another as their prince decreed. The city's buildings were jammed so closely together that it was scarcely possible, save in the merchant's quarters, to find a street more than eight feet wide. The reason for such a dense population was that there was no established religion there. Each man was a law unto himself. As a result, the basest element from every part of the world had gathered there, like the bilge water of a ship, a breeding ground for every kind of lust and impurity. Unquote. It's interesting to see how Osburnus, this anonymous English soldier, viewed freedom of religion not only as a foreign thing, but as a thing that would bring about social chaos in this, you know, widespread slum uh, that exists around Lisbon. These were different times. Well, after establishing a beachhead, the Crusaders' first course of action is to occupy the high ground around the city and then to drive the population from these crowded suburbs and to start building siege engines. The Moorish defenders don't take this lying down. They continually send out sorties of cavalry. Uh, These guys are trying to disrupt the work on the siege engines. At one point, they set fire to some of them and set the work back by several weeks. The crusaders send their own sorties, right, pushing the cavalry back, and they even get up to the walls at some points, right? Remember, during a siege, you want to see what kind of defenses you're facing. And while we're there, our anonymous English source uh, records some of the banter and taunting that happens. And, uh, you know, some of it's, uh, you know, a little more serious and racist or uh, mocking of religion. But other parts of it almost reminded me of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, Here is how he describes it. Quote, They taunted us with the many children who were going to be born at home while we were gone, and said that our wives would not be anxious about our deaths, since home was well supplied with little bastards. They promised that any of us who survived would go home miserable and poverty-stricken, and they mocked us and gnashed their teeth at us. They also continuously attacked the Blessed Mary, the Mother of God, with insults and with vile and abusive words which infuriated us. They said that we venerated the son of a poor woman with a worship equal to that due to God. For we held that he was a God and the son of God when it is apparent that there is only one God who began all things that have begun and that he is no one co-evil with him and no partaker in his divinity. They attacked us with these and similar calumnies. They showed to us moreover with much derision the symbol of the cross. They spat upon it and wiped the feces from their posteriors with it. At last they urinated on it, as on some despicable thing, and threw our cross at us. Unquote. So, not to put too fine a point on it, but the Moorish defenders of Lisbon are telling the Crusaders that their wives are all cheating on them while they're gone, and then they're making a Christian religious symbol, wiping their butts with it, and throwing it off the wall at the Crusaders. Almost sounds like a comedy sketch to me. Oh, and by the way, at least according to our chronicler, these guys are having a religious debate about the nature of God and the Virgin Mary in the midst of all this. On the one hand, it defies belief. On the other hand, in history, we hear wild, unbelievable stories all the time. Who's to say that some Christians and some Muslims during this siege weren't yelling at each other right between the top and the bottom of the wall having some crazy religious debate? Kind of wild to picture, isn't it? And here... Our anonymous chronicler then gives us a fascinating account of what happens during a siege, and at least from his perspective during this particular siege, starting from mid-August through September. Right, a lot of times when we read history, we hear, "And then there was a siege of so many months, and then this happened." Well, geez, that. So many months is oftentimes the bulk of the war, right? particularly in medieval times. Well, that's what happens here, right? The Crusaders showed up at the end of June, and the siege would go on right, all the way through the middle of October, Really the end of October. That is a long time to be sitting there outside the city walls. Well, what's going on? Both sides are still trying to win. Here's what our chronicler says, and I should point out that when he says English and Normans, uh, he means uh, native Britons and Saxons, right? The people who were already English, and their recent Norman conquerors uh, who had been living there for a couple generations at this point. And also, with them, I should mention, are a handful of Scots as well. Anyway. Osburnus says, quote, But finally, when we had been besieging the city for six weeks, and it had been learned that the enemy were rather hard-pressed by hunger, while an untold abundance of bread and wine and fruits was at hand for our forces, they gradually plucked up their spirits, they meaning the Crusaders. They drew the ships up on dry land, lowered the masts, and put the cordage under the hatches, as a sign that they were spending the winter. But the men of Cologne five times began to dig mines for the purpose of overturning the wall, and were as many times overwhelmed. Hence, our forces again had cause for deep discouragement, and murmuring much among themselves, they were making such complaints as that they might have been better employed elsewhere, when, after some days, there came to us by the determination of divine mercy no small consolation. For in the evening. Ten moors entered a skiff beneath the wall, and rode away in the direction of the castle of Palmella. But our men pursued them so closely that they abandoned the skiff in desperation, and everything they were carrying in it. Letters were found in it, directed to several parties, and written in the Arabic language. An example of one, as I got it from an interpreter, is as follows. Then. Quoting this letter that they found, uh, Osburnus continues, To Abu Muhammad, King of Evora, the unfortunate people of Lisbon. May he maintain his kingdom in safety. What great and terrible and unexpected disasters have come upon us. The desolate ruin of our city and the great effusion of noble blood, memorials, alas, of our everlasting grief proclaim. Already, The second moon has almost passed since the fleet of the Franks, which has been borne hither to our borders with the aid of heaven and earth and sea, has kept us shut within the circuit of this close-drawn wall. And what is to be hoped for amid this sum of woes is more than doubtful, except only to look for succor by means of ransom. But with our cooperation, we doubt not that you will liberate the city and the country from the barbarians, for they are not so very numerous or warlike as their tower and engines which we have burned with force and arms bear witness. Otherwise, let your prudence beware, for the same outcome of events and evils awaits you. And the letter ends, and our chronicler continues. And the other letters besought the same things from parents and other relatives and friends and from debtors. And besides, they besought them to pray for them to Allah, that is, God, that at the least he would not permit them at the moment of death to be cheated of that eternal retreat in which his beloved Muhammad dwells in glory. They also gave information concerning their supply of bread and other foodstuffs. When our men learned of these things, their spirits were greatly encouraged to continue the attack against the enemy for some days longer. After a short time, the corpse of a man who had been drowned was found beneath our ships, and on an arm a letter was tied, of which the tenor was as follows. And then, quoting this letter, The King of Avora to the Men of Lisbon. Liberty of Action. Having long since entered into a truce with the King of the Portuguese, I cannot break faith and wage war upon him and his people. For the rest, take heed in good time. By safety with your money, lest that prove a cause of your hurt which ought to be a cause of your well-being. Farewell. Give something worthwhile to this, our messenger. And that letter ends, and Osburnus goes on. So finally, as the Moors' last hope of relief was destroyed, our men kept watch the more vigilantly. A part of our army returned from the castle of Sintra with a great quantity of booty for the nature of the site prevented them from attempting an assault upon the castle or a siege. What he means there is that they pillaged the surrounding area rather than besiege the castle of Sintra. While we were carrying on the foregoing operations, the king dismissed all of his own forces except a small number of knights and the officers of his household, having either sold his provisions or sent them to Santerum. Only the Bishop of Oporto remained consistently with us until the surrender of the city. Meanwhile, the Moors being hard-pressed by hunger, whenever any of their poor were able to do so secretly, they gave themselves up to our men. And so it soon came about that the acts and plans of the enemy could be but little concealed from us. Then our men, attending more strictly to the siege, Began to dig a subterranean mine between the tower and the Porta do Ferro, in order that they might be able to bring down the wall. When this had been discovered, for it was quite accessible to the enemy, it proved greatly to our detriment after the investment of the city, for many days were consumed in its vain defence. Besides, two Balearic mangonels, which is a type of catapult, uh, were set up by our forces, one on the river bank, which was operated by seamen the other in front of the Porta de Ferro, which was operated by the knights and their table companions. All these men having been divided into groups of one hundred, on a given signal the first hundred were retired, and another took their places, so that within the space of ten hours five thousand stones were hurled. And the enemy were greatly harassed by this action. Again, the Normans and the English and those who were with them began the erection of a movable tower eighty-three feet in height, Once more, with a view to bringing down the wall, the men of Cologne and the Flemings began to dig a mine beneath the wall of the stronghold higher up, a mine which, marvelous to relate, had five entrances, and extended inside to a depth of forty cubits, that's about sixty feet from the front, and they completed it within a month. Meanwhile, hunger and the stench of corpses greatly tormented the enemy, for there was no burial space within the city and for food they collected the refuse which was thrown out from our ships and borne up by the waves beneath their walls. A ridiculous incident occurred as a result of their hunger when some of the Flemings, while keeping guard among the ruins of houses, were eating figs and, having had enough, left some lying about unconsumed. When this was discovered by four of the Moors, they came up stealthily and cautiously like birds approaching food, and when the Flemings observed this, they frequently scattered refuse of this sort about, of in order that they might lure them on with bait. And finally, having set snares in the accustomed places, they caught three of the Moors in them, and thereby caused an enormous merriment among us. Unquote. One can only imagine what that merriment might have entailed. Anyway. The chronicler goes on, quote, When the wall had been undermined, and inflammable material had been placed within the mine and lighted, the same night at cockcrow, about thirty cubits of the wall, or forty-five feet, crumbled to the ground. Then the Moors, who were guarding the wall, were heard to cry out in their anguish that they might now make an end of their long labors, and that this very day would be their last, and that it would have to be divided with death and that this would be their greatest consolation, for death, if without fearing it, might exchange their lives for ours. For it was necessary to go yonder whence there was no need of returning, and if a life were well ended, it would be nowhere said to have been cut short. For what mattered was not how long, but how well a life had been lived. And a life would have lasted as long as it should, even though not as long as it naturally could, provided it closed in a fitting end. And so the moors gathered from all sides for the defense of the breach in the wall, placing against it a barrier of beams. Accordingly, when the men of Cologne and the Flemings went out to attempt an entrance, they were repulsed. For although the wall had collapsed, the nature of the situation on the steep hillside Prevented an entry merely by the heaps of ruins. So, just to sum up, the Cologne and Flemish crusaders dug some mines under the wall, blew some stuff up, uh, collapsed part of the wall, and now they are attacking up a hill, attempting to climb over the rubble of the wall they collapsed and to get through a 45 foot gap in the wall that's now barricaded with lumber and defended by some very desperate Moors. This attempted attack does not go well. Osburnus says, quote, But when they failed to overcome the defenders in a hand-to-hand encounter, they attacked them furiously from a distance with arrows, so that they looked like hedgehogs as, bristling with bolts, they stood immovably at the defense and endured as if unharmed. Thus the defense was maintained against the onslaught of the attackers until the first hour of the day, when the latter retired to camp. The Normans and the English came under arms to take up the struggle in place of their associates, supposing that an entrance would be easy now that the enemy were wounded and exhausted. But they were prevented by the leaders of the Flemings and the men of Cologne, who assailed them with insults and demanded that we attempt an entrance in any way that it might be accomplished with our own engines." For they said that they had prepared the breach, which now stood open for themselves, not for us. And so, for several days, they were altogether repelled from the breach. So, where do we stand right now? How does this compare to the situation just before the end of the failed siege of Damascus? Well, for one thing, the food situation is reversed. Right, a major factor, probably the main factor in the Crusaders having to withdraw from Damascus was the fact that they were out of food and they had lost control of those orchards, right? Well, here outside of Lisbon, the Crusaders control all of the food sources and it is the besieged defenders of the city who are starving. This has some knock-on effects, right? We hear about some of the starving Muslims coming out of the city to scavenge food in any way they can, and they're captured, and some of the poorest Moors even just come out and surrender because they're too poor to be worth ransoming, and the Crusaders are able to get some valuable information out of them in exchange for food. Again, contrast this with the situation at Damascus where the Knights Templar and some of the Jerusalem nobility took bribes from the defenders. Now, one similarity we have is the rivalry among the crusaders playing a factor, always causing trouble behind the scenes. And another thing that's in common is that the city has a stout defense, right? Remember the Emir of Lisbon holds out for over three and a half months. That is not bad, considering the situation, and that he doesn't really have any help. In something that strikes me when reading this account, too, is, you know, how much of the time is just spent skirmishing and building stuff and how important mining is. All right, how often do you see people trying to tunnel under a wall? in a movie or on TV, right? It's just not something that movie writers and directors, for instance, think about. Maybe it's not as exciting as a whole bunch of people just charging the wall with ladders and, you know, I I don't know, uh, Mel Gibson's out in front of them screaming and, you know, it's exciting and digging a tunnel under the wall and, you know, planting some explosives is not quite as cinematic, maybe. And conversely, uh, something that is uh, also not as cinematic in real life is uh, that there are far fewer siege engines than you might expect if you just learned about this stuff casually, right? What do we see? Uh, We see two mangonels, right? Two anti-personnel catapults, and it takes 100 men at a time to operate each of them. Now, why is that? Well, presumably it has a little something to do with those 5,000 stones uh, that our chronicler talks about those uh, mangonels throwing, right? You're going to gather up 5,000 stones... That takes a lot of manpower, particularly if you're doing it, you know, sort of on the fly, in the heat of the moment, trying to just keep those machines going, which is what it sounds like is being described here. Again, if this were a Hollywood movie, there'd be, you know, a couple of dozen catapults, and each one would just magically have this, you know, giant stack of mostly uniform rocks next to it, and everything would be nice and orderly, and there'd be like three guys running each one, and they'd be firing, uh, you know, very easily and quickly, and as it turns out, uh, this is a complicated operation that requires a lot of manpower, and uh, just running a couple of medieval siege engines really required a, a significant portion of your army's resources. Now that I have ranted about siege engines and how they are wildly overplayed in popular culture, I will have to concede that the English siege engine, their siege tower they've been building, turns out to be the decisive factor in the battle. The siege tower is completed by mid-October. A siege tower is basically a tower that is slightly taller than whatever walls you're trying to get onto, and there's sort of a drawbridge at the top of the tower, and the tower sits on big wheels, and you have a bunch of guys just roll it up to the wall, and then you can climb up through a ladder or stairs inside the tower and drop that drawbridge down onto the wall, and you basically, instead of blasting or knocking a hole in the wall, just sort of get up on top of it by making a bridge. And despite the Defender's best efforts, the siege engine, this tower, reaches the city walls on October 21st of 1147. And at that point, the emir sends an official offer of surrender. He knows that once these European knights start coming over this drawbridge on top of the walls. Uh, His defenders, you know, with their limited number of weapons and shields, uh, they're not going to be able to hold. Especially not hungry and indeed starving as they are. Now, upon receiving this offer of surrender, King Alfonso immediately agrees. And again, he wants the city. He's not here to kill Muslims or sack the place or even take wealth he's just trying to expand his realm if they're going to surrender great but at this time some of the Flemish and Cologne troops revolt right remember these guys have been fighting for a while at this breach in the wall a lot of them have died and they're not necessarily content just to take a peaceful surrender And if you recall from our source, some of the city's inhabitants, some of the more important Moors, are now being held as hostages by King Alfonso, right? These people who sort of came out of the city during the siege and were captured. Well... The Flemish and Cologne men, at least some of them, decide that if Alfonso is going to surrender, they're just going to take these hostages for themselves and see what they can get. Uh, So fighting breaks out within the Crusader camp. And uh, it nearly comes to a full-on battle between the two sides. But the Flemish and German leaders... The noblemen in charge, they sort of step in unarmed, uh, according to Osburnus, and uh, that is enough to convince their men to back down. Both of these guys go to Alfonso. They swear, look, we had nothing to do with it. These are just some rogue men. Let us deal with it. We're going to be fine. And Alfonso agrees, but before entering the city, he demands that all the leaders of the Crusader army swear fealty to him, right, he is making sure that this city is taken on his terms, not on theirs, and the Crusader leaders agree. And at that point, Alfonso officially accepts the Moorish surrender offer before entering the city on October 25th. Thanks to his actions, he is now known variously in Portugal as O Fundador, which means the founder, and O Conquistador, which means the conqueror. But unfortunately, now that the city has fallen, not all of the crusaders behave honorably. Alfonso himself enters as part of a religious procession with only a certain predefined number of crusaders from each camp, a few hundred allowed to enter and peaceably collect booty. And the plan, according to the surrender agreement, is that all the Muslim inhabitants of the city are to be allowed to just hand over their valuables, and then that their houses are to be searched peacefully, and, you know, as long as they didn't hide anything away, as long as they handed over all their valuables, they'll be left alone. Now they will be killed if uh, it's found that they did hide anything away. But this is much more peaceful than your typical uh, sort of, oh, we're going to sack the entire city and kill all the men and rape all the women and everything type uh, end to a siege. It was really relatively civilized. Uh, But the Flemish and Kelowna armies, well, again, they're not content with this. One... Must wonder if the fact that they lost so many men at that breach in the wall has something to do with it, right? Again, do they have a bone to pick here that goes beyond simply winning the day and getting their loot? Sounds like it. So, a few hundred men from each of those camps uh, sneaks through the now undefended gaps in the wall and... Even as Alfonso is accepting the surrender, these men start looting and pillaging. Here is how Osburnus describes it. He says, The archbishop and the other bishops went in front of us with the Lord's cross, and then our leaders entered together with the king and those who had been selected. How everyone rejoiced! What special glory for all! What great joy, and what a great abundance there was of pious tears, when, to the praise and honor of God and of the most holy Virgin Mary, the saving cross was placed atop the highest tower to be seen by all as a symbol of the city's subjection, while the archbishop and bishops, together with the clergy and everyone, intoned with wonderful rejoicing the Te Deum, Laudamus, and the Aspergus May, together with devout prayers. The king, meanwhile, went around the strong walls of the fortress on foot. The men of Cologne and the Flemings, when they saw in the city so many spurs to their greed, did not observe their oaths or their religious guarantees. They ran hither and yon. They plundered. They broke down doors. They rummaged through the interior of every house. They drove the citizens away and harassed them improperly and unjustly. They destroyed clothes and utensils. They treated virgins shamefully. They acted as if right and wrong were the same. They secretly took away everything which should have been common property. They even cut the throat of the elderly bishop of the city, slaying him against all right and justice. The Normans and the English, however, for whom faith and religion were of the greatest importance, contemplating what such actions might lead to, remained quietly in their assigned position preferring to stay their hands from looting rather than to violate the obligations of their faith and their oath-bound association. This affair covered the Count of Erschot, Christian, and their leaders with very great shame. Those are the two main leaders of the Flemish and Cologne troops. For while their men had patently disregarded their oath, ours, by staying out of it, made the greed of the others plain. Finally, They came to themselves and besought our men with earnest prayers that we should occupy the remaining sections of the city together with them, so that, after the loot had been divided, all the injuries and thefts might be discussed peacefully, and they would be prepared to make amends for the evils they had presumed to commit. The enemy, when they had been despoiled in the city, left the town through three gates continuously from Saturday morning until the following Wednesday. There was such a multitude of people that it seemed as if all of Spain were mingled in the crowd. After the siege of Lisbon, some of the Crusaders would continue on to the Holy Land. Most of these few who continued would stop in Barcelona along the way to help with another Christian kingdom there the vast majority of those crusaders who fought at Lisbon would ultimately stay and settle in the city, which would further bolster its new Christian identity. The conquest of this ancient and important city would help to cement Alfonso I's legacy as the founder of Portugal. In 1179... 32 years later, while he was still king, the Pope would officially acknowledge the existence of the Kingdom of Portugal. And that's sort of the medieval equivalent of a country being recognized by the United Nations. right? If we want to know if a country is really a country today, we just see if they're recognized by the UN, well, in medieval Europe, if you want to see if a country is really a kingdom, or if it's just some upstart duchy, well, you just see if the Pope has acknowledged their existence. And in 1179, that happens. By 1249, the last remnants of Moorish control would be driven from Portugal. And it would be 243 more years, right, until 1492 when Spain would complete her own more famous Reconquista by defeating the Emirate of Granada. But in 1249, Portugal was already essentially modern-day Portugal. And by the end of the 1200s, the last few major changes would happen. The capital would be moved to Lisbon in 1255, And in 1297, the last modification would be made to the country's borders. Yes, the borders of the modern nation of Portugal have been the same since the year 1297, which makes them among the oldest 1% of all borders on planet Earth. Portugal would take advantage of her nationhood in ways that many small countries can only envy. Right? She would go on to discover the first sea route around Africa, establish contact with Japan, and even send colonists to the New World. Right, Modern-day Brazil, with its Portuguese language and Portuguese culture, has over 20 times the population of Portugal itself. This massive trade power and this spread of culture throughout the world makes Portugal one of those small countries that had a big impact on history. As it turns out, none of that would have been possible if not for the ignominious fiasco that we call the Second Crusade. And that's why it's relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Hello again. It's Dan, and I'm here to ask for your help. See, we're trying to promote this show and get the word out to as many people as possible. So, if you have a minute, please share on your favorite social media. Send a link to the episode or even to our website at dantolerpodcast.com. That's Dan, podcast.com. If this is your first time listening to the show... Don't miss a future episode. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, Google, Spotify, or just about any other service you want to listen to a podcast on. You can find an RSS link as well as a link to all these other services, again, at dantollerpodcast.com. If you want news on the latest episodes or anything that is upcoming in the world of relevant history... You can find us at Dan Toller Podcast on Twitter or at Dan Toller on Facebook. Finally, if you've got a few dollars and you'd like to provide some financial support to the show, you can find us at Patreon.com/slash/DanTollerPodcast. Alternatively, you can also support the show at Subscribestar.com. You can find us there at Relevant History. And for everything else, including links to interviews and my blog, which may or may not ever get updated, once again, Dan Toler Podcast, dantolerpodcast dot com. Thanks for listening.